Just do one one more piece here and and uh, end with some some meditation, some loving kindness. So I thought I would bring it back to the twelve steps and uh, and kind of do this uh, germinal idea for the book of let me talk about the twelve steps as sources of happiness Um, because I think a lot of the steps are not seen as sources of happiness but rather sort of onerous duties that we must fulfill in order to be in recovery and to be good people and to keep those demons of addiction away Uh, but I do think that each of the steps contains uh, some opportunities for happiness and that, that again just the idea of finding the joy that's already there that we may already be experiencing can help us to just incline the mind so I'm going to just read this stuff I just wrote this this week actually one of the publishers who's interested in the book was like, well, we want to hear more about the 12 steps. Okay, I'll write that. So, it could be rough. Now, step one. As I described in giving up, the piece I wrote before, there can be great joy, or I read before. As I described in giving up, there can be great joy in just stopping. Letting go of our addiction is a huge relief. In spiritual terms, this is surrender an element of every spiritual tradition that contains an aspect of joy, relief, and devotion. So, the beginning of the process. Uh, This idea of surrender, uh, I think, is so important. Both in step one, step three, and through the whole process of just... and, And the practice as a kind of devotion is something that, that we can tap into for another kind of level of sweetness and richness uh, in this whole process. But step two, I, I should probably recite the step. I mean, step two is came to believe that a power greater than ourselves could restore us to sanity. There's great comfort in the realization that we aren't alone, that there is help and that we can heal our lifelong suffering. And this is what step two is really saying, that there is this possibility of recovery, and that there is help, uh, be it internal or external. There is power uh, that we can access. Step three says we made a decision to turn our will and our lives over the care of God as we understood Him. to leave the word him and be okay. With this step comes the beginning of serenity and clarity. Now we see that we are on our path and that we're going to be okay. Another deeper surrender brings a level of spiritual peace that many of us had never experienced. Now the step, one of the words that's kind of often overlooked in the step is such the care of God, or the care of a higher power. And in the, the Buddha was 
sometimes called the great doctor. And the, the Four Noble Truths are a description of a diagnosis, uh, a prognosis, and a prescription, or a prescription. And a, so they're modeled on the Ayurvedic medical model. So the, the idea that the, the Buddha is helping us to heal, or that the steps are helping us to heal, that we are being cared for, uh, is integral to the recovery. And obviously recovery has a medical element to it as well. But in, in simpler, maybe less lofty terms, we can see that mindfulness itself has a healing quality. We, when we're present with things, when we let go of aversion and grasping, there's a softening. And, uh, uh, you know, the... The kind, there's a kindness that arises. A lot of teachers now are starting to actually teach loving kindness and mindfulness as two elements of the same thing, that they aren't really separate. And I absolutely see that. That when we are present, when we're fully present in that, that balanced way, that there's a, a sense of safety, a sense of care, a sense of love that arises and co-arises with that experience. Step four is we made a searching and fearless moral inventory of ourselves. Painful as it can be to look at our past mistakes, the sense that we are really on our way to recovery gives momentum and excitement to the process. While we may feel bad about what we did in the past, we can see that we are no longer engaged in these behaviors and that our past doesn't define or limit us. In step five, when we share the inventory, we admit it to God, to ourselves, to another human being, the exact nature of our wrongs. There can be great relief and joy at unburdening ourselves of our secrets and shame. When shared with a skillful and compassionate sponsor or other spiritual friend, the reflection they give, they give, or that person gives, brings our past into perspective and shows us that while we may have done some bad things, we were not bad people. Essentially, we were just confused and struggling human beings who made the same mistakes that many, if not most, humans make. Step six. We were entirely ready to have God remove all these defects of character. At this point, we are moving away from the past contained in our inventory and toward a future of healing. Again, the momentum of the steps seems to be accumulating, and by now we're fully committed and engaged in the process. The sense of potential for a new, exciting, and fulfilling life overtakes us and brings real joy. Step seven, we humbly ask him to remove our shortcomings. By taking the actions we know will continue to help to heal to help us to heal and grow, we are now living the steps and the path. No longer faking it or just doing what we're supposed to, by the time we engage this step, most of us feel a great sense of possibility and even inevitability that our life is finally turning around. Step eight, made a list of those we had harmed and became willing to make amends to them all. While it can be agonizing to see the list of those we both loved and resented, who were sometimes the same people, 
We can feel confident that the finish line is in sight, that is, the journey through our painful past is nearing its resolution. At this point, our commitment to honesty is so total that we might even feel a sense of freedom in simply admitting the truth of this list. Step nine, may direct amends to such people wherever possible, except when to do so would injure them or others. Certainly making amends is a difficult and sometimes painful process, but most of us have had remarkable moments of freedom and joy when our amends were accepted. On the other hand, a difficult amends that isn't received so kindly helps us to deepen our acceptance both of the person we harmed and of our lack of control over others. We know within ourselves that we truly regret our actions and that we have changed. If others can't see that and accept that, it is not our responsibility. Step 10, continue to take personal inventory and when we were wrong, promptly admitted it. It brings a great sense of safety to know that we are not accumulating piles of new bad karma. When we stay honest and current, we don't carry around a burden of guilt. At this point, there can also be a sense of letting go around protecting self. The ego becomes less vulnerable because we don't see it as representing something so real or important. Step 11. Sought through prayer and meditation to improve our conscious contact with God as we understood Him, praying only for knowledge of His will for us and the power to carry that out. For many, this is one of the most joyful of all the steps. As our spiritual life deepens, we begin to touch the deeper forms of happiness unrelated to the material world. The depth of peace, the depth of peace accessible through meditation can introduce us to an entirely new or entirely different realm of existence. The sense of connection and being at home in the world allows us to live fully and let go completely. Step 12, having had a spiritual awakening as the result of this, these steps, we tried to carry this message to others and to practice these principles in all our affairs. Certainly a spiritual awakening in whatever form it takes is a cause for joy and celebration. The service that arises from that awakening helps us to stop focusing on our own concerns and to experience the joy of giving. Finally, the clarity and safety derived from living our principles fully completes the sense of peace, joy, and fulfillment that the steps promise. Ta-da! So that's kind of the bottom line on this in terms of a 12-step perspective. And, you know, and again, kind of brings me back to one of my starting points, which is, uh, you know, I think somewhat of a tendency of addicts to sort of look at the negative. Uh, partly, as we've talked about, out of kind of fear of relapsing or falling into, grasping after pleasure. Uh, but partly, probably, just because of tendencies of mind. And, you know, I think the 12 steps which I have worked with in this way for over a decade now, continue for me to be really interesting as a place of exploration, because I think that they are 
not at all, uh, it, it isn't self-evident what they're really saying. And, and that's, oh, I, I keep finding layers of meaning in this. Actually, that brings to mind something that I recently was exposed to, which I only have on my tablet. Um, although I have something in here that's debated. So this this is just um, just a moment. Um, I was teaching a retreat in Sedona, Arizona, um, at the end of September, and the. And the man who uh, was the uh, program director at the retreat center who had invited me there, has been in recovery for over 30 years, exposed me to some early 12-step literature that I had never heard about called the Akron Pamphlets. This is a few of them here. And there is a little paragraph that in, the, in this uh, package that holds them together. This historical literature was written by Evan W. at the request of Dr. Bob, one of the co-founders of Alcoholics Anonymous. Bob felt that the newly written big book was too difficult for the blue-collar worker to read. So he asked Evan, who was a former writer, to write these pamphlets. These pamphlets were completed by 1950 and reflected the early mindset of Akron's earliest members. So, one of these uh, pamphlets is called Spiritual Dimension, Dimensions of Alcoholics Anonymous. Remember, this is like, it, it, just the context of the historical context is that this is before 1950. And you know, our understanding, I think most of us sort of make certain assumptions about um, what the founders of AA thought about God and spirituality, but this particular pamphlet has disabused me of a lot of those views. It says, it would be nice if God were a stately old gentleman, benign with a long gray beard, clothed in flowing white gown, seated on a golden throne, surrounded by angels and archangels. But unfortunately, it is not as simple as that. No man can describe God completely as he is, God being an intangible spirit. Conceptions of him often differ as day from night. Well, that's one little line. But, so, let me get to where I want to get to. So, now, says, the spiritual life is by no means a Christian monopoly. There is not an ethical religion in the world today that does not teach to a great extent the principles of love, charity, and goodwill. So just this statement itself is, I think, an important one, because many people assume that, that AA is a Christian program. And here's the, one of the co-founders of Alcoholics Anonymous making the very clear point this isn't meant to reflect Christian values, but rather 
Christian, or rather, spiritual values. Thank you. He then talks about different religions and how they are completely in harmony with the principles of the Twelve Steps. And here's the payoff. Consider the eight-part program laid down in Buddhism. Right view, right aim, right speech, right action, right living, right effort, right mindedness, and right contemplation. The Buddhist philosophy, as exemplified by these eight points, could be literally adopted by AA as a substitute for or addiction to the Twelve Steps. Generosity, universal love, and welfare of others, rather than considerations of self, are basic to Buddhism. So, the Eightfold Path could be a substitute for the Twelve Steps, according to one of the co-founders of Alcoholics Anonymous. I didn't think they even knew about the Eightfold Path. <laughs> I figured they knew, had heard of Buddha, you know, and maybe had some vague idea of that. But to actually list the Eightfold Path here shows that they actually had some idea what they were talking about and had looked at it enough to be able to make these correlations and, and you know, not even to say, say, oh, this is nice, and this is good, but to say that, oh, we could just do it this way. That pretty much blew my mind when I read that. <laughs> you know, here I've been doing this work thinking I have come up, up with this really original idea about 15 years ago, you know, oh, nobody ever thought of this. Well, here the co-founders of AA <laughs> thought of this, you know. And in fact, that's more radical a statement than I would make. I'd say the Four Noble Truths, which include the Eightfold Path, could be a good substitute. But to say just the Eightfold Path, of course, with right view, right view essentially means that you understand the Four Noble Truths. So, so that, it, that does make sense. But that's pretty, for me, pretty interesting. <laughs> that, uh, you know, if, if people have a sense that, oh, you know, there's this conflict you know, I can't sort of make these two go together. Or that even the God stuff, I mean, there's no mention of, oh, it doesn't say, like, there's no God in Buddhism. It doesn't, it just says we could substitute him for the 12 steps. Yeah, it's really, really uh, interesting. Curiouser and curiouser, they say. <laughs> so... That's pretty much what I got. I'm gonna, uh, we'll close with some loving kindness, but um, I'm open to any, uh, you know, thoughts or questions and things that people have. Just beautiful that um, that literature that PC just shared, and uh, and also, I mean, it feels uh, good. To just really, and I've read some of the, or like the first edition of the big book, mm-hmm. and like some of the earlier um, editions, and and I got that real sense, that agnostic sense, mm-hmm. and that mm-hmm. um, kind of uh, uh, actually, from what I understand, Bill Wilson really just kind of keeping pushing, pushing the envelope open, yeah. open, open, yeah. so that all can feel feel like they can get recovery. Yeah. You know? And um, I feel like that's narrowed as. All really, uh, which happens with all spiritual paths. Right, right, exactly. As people try to retranslate it. That's right. And people become attached. Yeah, yeah.
and that and also it makes me feel um, a little uh, more kind of engaged in the, the refuge recovery yeah. process and exactly. kind of you know what what's what's happening here and just to really see that it's been pointed to you know, yep. a long time ago. Yep. Absolutely. Yeah, uh, really, really interesting. But not necessarily as an alternative, but as an addition. Yeah. Or an alternative, you know, depending on where people fall in that category. Yeah, you know, the, you know, and maybe this is too uh, gross a way of describing it, but it seems to me that recovery has two major components. One is to get it, to get out of your addiction, to break your addiction for good. And that's the, the most important part, in, uh, essentially. I mean, that's got to happen or nothing else can happen. And then the other part is living in recovery and making a meaningful, joyful life in recovery. The, the second one, it's, it's easier to say how to do that than it is the first one. How people actually get sober, get clean, make that transition, that's the tough thing. And that's what, obviously, Bill and Bob and the early members were really focused on doing that. And that's, the, you know, what they found for themselves, that the way they were able to get it was to give it away. Um, but the, it seems to me that you know when people relapse, I often will hear these things about oh I couldn't find a higher power, or, I couldn't handle those meetings, or and uh, there's always sort of something out there. But to me, the essence of relapse from a twelve-step viewpoint is the first step, you know. And if you relapse, it's not a third-step issue or a God issue. It's a you know a it's a commitment issue. It's a it's a making the decision. It's you know, and so I think motivation and commitment, you know, wanting. And as they say, people that are, make it in the program are the ones who want it, not the ones who need it. So it's not about how bad your bottom was, you know, or any of that stuff. It's about have you really made the decision and. and to me, there's that real clarity about the suffering that addiction, you know, it's that right view. It's that real clarity that this doesn't work. And all, all that goes along with it. But I don't think any program, whether it's refuge recovery or smart recovery or 12 steps, has a, a monopoly on getting people to make that choice. And that's, that's the thing that, that we, and, and it's it's the tough one, I think, in terms of helping people. But rather, what facilitates someone making that choice? Yeah, you know, right. all of right. those could be whatever works for them. Yeah. yeah. Um, oh, that's what it was. First step. Mm-hmm. Yeah, the way that uh, I've kind of translated that and had it heard it translated is. You know, really admitting to your innermost self that you can never safely use drugs or alcohol again. Like, in, in, unless that happens, that psychic change isn't 
it's not there. You know? So that's really so instead of getting locked up in the powerlessness and oh, the yeah. manageability and you know admitting admitting yeah. to who admitting to your innermost self yeah. that you can never safely use drugs or drink again. Yeah. That is what's necessary. That's what I, I mean. As someone who's been working in recovery for twenty plus years, yeah. this is what I'm always telling people. That's exactly how I see it, and yeah. and I'm. It's another one of those things that I. It's something maybe I should try to read more early recovery literature to understand why they wrote the step the way they did, mm-hmm. because I know they knew that. Right. And, and the it's in the literature, but not in the step in quite that way. The way they, I guess, saw it was that that's the admission. You know, they 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 saw it, and and I think that maybe this does have to do with their spiritual viewpoint in terms of power and higher power. You know, because they're essentially setting up powerlessness in contrast to higher power. And so I think that's one of the reasons the steps are written in that way, that step one is actually written in that way so that step two and step three will make sense as a solution to step one. But it winds up being a little bit obscure or almost off the mark in terms of what how we really understand what has to happen. That, that, in fact, that admitting to your innermost self. That's why I think the first step inventory is is maybe more important than a four step inventory. That first step inventory where you really review all the stuff you did and all the ways you tried to control it and all the things that actually happened and year after year after year after year and time after time with different drugs and different you know behaviors and different situations and uh, and, and feeling wow that's can't control it, and that's that's how what brings those guys to powerlessness. But it, it doesn't always seem like it's just about control. Right. There's something more than even that. But again, for me, you know, the twelve steps then begin become the beginning of a an exploration of the conversation. They, they, they remain as kind of that uh, basis for that. Uh, but it, obviously, they don't have to be. That's just that's the way I was raised. What you had your hand up? Or I was just going to say, pretty much along that same line, it's really helpful hearing that 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 was that it's open to different faiths or whatever, yeah. you know, because it can be really intimidating and it can be kind of a turnoff to get into to want to get into recovery and want to get clean or sober. But not want to go hardcore religious or anything, yeah. and so it's nice to it's nice to have this. It's nice to have the possibility of the refuge and just yeah. that alternative. To, there can still be spirituality, you know, without that feeling of you know religion forced on you yeah. so that you get cleaned over that way. So. Yeah, it's it, interesting that. I've encountered one person, and there, this apparently is something of a. There's people who kind of are following this idea. But there's a guy who calls himself Dick B. I don't know what his last name is, but the guy, the guy who's supposed to read the pamphlets, knows who this Dick B is, and sort of he was saying, 
that people have tried to hijack Dr. Bob's spiritual legacy. Dick B. says, well, Dr. Bob was a born-again Christian who believed that you had to accept Jesus Christ as your personal Savior in order to stay sober. And so, you know, he's promoting this idea that, in this really unfortunate idea, that you have to be a born-again Christian to stay sober. And it's like, which to me is irresponsible. I mean, that to me is like saying you have to be a Buddhist to stay sober, or to even to say you have to be a Buddhist to become enlightened. You know, like that's just a criminal. You know, as far as I'm concerned. Um, so I was really because when I heard that, I was like, really? I mean, I don't I haven't read Dr. Bob's letters or stuff that people get into this stuff. You know, they uh, get into all this uh, archival material. But but Jay, the guy who showed me the pamphlets, has read a lot of the stuff. He was reading some of Bill Wilson's letters to me, which are very open spiritually, you know. Um, and you can see that, yeah, right, that's, that's just ridiculous to imply that Dr. Bob was trying to turn everybody into born-again Christians. You know? And I think that's one of the reasons they turned away from the Oxford group and all that. That It was like really more evangelical. And, yeah, I, I don't know if these are things that we have to solve today. <laughs> so, are there any lingering thoughts or questions that are with anyone that you're going to leave today and say, I wish I had asked him this. Do you have an email address? We can email you questions later when we're like, ah, Yes, yes. Just go to my website, which is kevingriffin.net, and click contact. I try to reply to all emails. I'm, I'm not inundated with uh, inquiries, so I'm happy to. Yeah. All right, so let's, let's, um, let's do some meta practice to close out. Settling into a comfortable posture, where the breath can move easily through the body. Having a sense of softening, opening the heart, breathing into the heart. A sense of Receptivity, bringing to mind someone for whom it's easy for you to love. Someone who has helped you, a teacher, a benefactor, 
someone who supported you, sponsor. And bringing this beloved one to mind as you breathe into your heart and sending them loving kindness. Your wish for them to be happy. So as you think of them, the feeling of love may arise in you. To open to that feeling, and then using some of the loving kindness phrases to offer them happiness. May you be happy. May you be peaceful. And may you be safe from inner and outer harm. May you be happy. May you be peaceful. May you be safe. Imagine this person in your mind Expressing this feeling of love to them, your wish for them. same loving-kindness that you give your beloved back on yourself. Accepting loving-kindness. May I be happy. May I be peaceful. May I be safe. Enveloping yourself with warmth, kindness, love. kindness to other dear ones, family and friends, teachers, caretakers, letting people come to mind 
one by one and offering each loving kindness. Continuing with the praises, may you be happy, may you be peaceful, may you be safe. Now bringing to mind a neutral person when you have no strong feelings about that you might just see casually someone who works in a cafe or maybe a neighbor you pass in the street or in the hall or a colleague. We actually difficult task is to come up with a neutral person. Take a few moments and just whoever arises, just use them. The point is to try to cultivate love towards all beings. You know, most people are neutral to us. We want to see what that feels like, if that's possible. May you be happy. May you be peaceful. May you be safe. mind a difficult person, seeing if you can let go of ill will for at least a few moments, 
as you think of someone difficult, either someone you know personally or someone you know of, like a public figure you disagree with or you judge. Something to keep your heart open as you think of them and send them loving kindness. May you be happy. May you be peaceful. May you be safe. Now beginning to radiate out loving-kindness. Radiating loving-kindness from your heart out to all those in this room. May you all be happy. May you be peaceful. May you be safe. Those who are free and those who are oppressed. 
those at peace and those at war. And all the beings, no matter their circumstances, be happy, peaceful, safe. spreading outwards now into space in all directions throughout the universe. Unbounded. Unlimited. Loving kindness spreading to the limits of the universe. Touching all beings and all things. The entire universe illuminated with loving-kindness. May all beings everywhere be happy. May all beings everywhere be peaceful. May all beings everywhere be safe. Feeling the vastness of the heart, the limitless quality of the heart. into this room, back into this body, into this heart, into this breath. We're seeing that this limitless loving kindness begins in our own hearts, lives in our own hearts, and is always available to us if we simply turn and open to it. This joyful love lives within us.
May all beings be happy, joyous, and clean. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.